Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking Abu Dhabi and its current and future role in the commodities market as it positions itself to become another global commodity trading hub, rivaling Singapore, Geneva, London, and New York. Our guest is Mark Cutit. Mark is CEO of ADGM Authority, the Abu Dhabi Global Market, and is the former Chief Advisor for Finance and Investments at ADNOC, as well as the CFO of the Abu Dhabi Investment Council. Mark has had a long career as an investor and financier. Mark, thanks for joining. Good to be here, Paul. So we're talking about Abu Dhabi and its future role in the commodities markets. Before we, we, we sort of look to the current situation and look toward the future, can you just give us a bit of a brief overview, a sense of history with Abu Dhabi, the Emirates more broadly, and their involvement in, in energy uh, and even other commodities? So in terms of the historical trajectory of Abu Dhabi's involvement in commodities, and in particular, it's uh, oil and gas. You know, Oil, I think, was discovered sometime in the 50s. Adnoc, which is the key company that exploits the oil reserves in Abu Dhabi, was founded in the late 60s, and the country became independent in 1971. So it's uh, this year it's actually enjoying its 50th anniversary. And they also discovered natural gas probably sometime uh, in the late 70s. So this gas exploitation and oil crude sort of production and transportation to the world has been going on for some time. What's significant and important to remember is that ADNOC, i.e. Abu Dhabi, and Aramco, the Arabian-American oil company that exploits the petroleum reserves in Saudi Arabia, they both have the lowest cost of extraction and the lowest carbon footprint of any company or anywhere in the world. So these dual advantages, if you will, which is the lowest price for extracting the crude and the lowest carbon footprint, would suggest today that no matter what happens to the trajectory, in the price of oil, these two these two companies will be, in one way, shape, or form, last man standing. I think that's a fascinating statement, and, and clearly, obviously, um, valid. So you've got the Emirates that have been enriched, particularly Abu Dhabi, as I understand it, has the you know ninety percent of the proven re- reserves in in oil and gas that the Emirates have. And and that has led to great wealth and, and great opportunity. But there has been this sense over the last period of time, last decade or so, where, and, and similar to Saudi Arabia, you mentioned Aramco, have been a desire to diversify their business beyond just extraction and selling of their, their natural resources. Can you give us some context of that and then how that leads up to the creation of, of ADGM? The desire and the recognition that at some point the oil would run out or something would happen but principally the oil would run out has been locked in the collective conscious of the country for a very long time 
and I would argue that the founding father of this nation, who was truly a visionary, and you have to use that word carefully, right? Because someone does something right or someone is clever doesn't make them a visionary. But this was someone who set the path for this country to where it is today in its current development and also thought about the importance of diversification. So they started ADIA, which is Abu Dhabi Investment Authority, to take the funds, the surplus funds that were being generated, and to use them to build portfolios of financial assets, which is a kind of patrimony for the nation. And this company was started sometime in the late 60s. Based on the the information that I've seen, officially IDEA started in 74, but they had already uh, accumulated reserves from the late 60s. So you're talking about somewhere, you know, 45, 46 years that this kind of this initiative started. In the last 15, 20 years, there's been an acceleration in the desire to diversify. So at this point, the economy is, I would say, it's not where they want it to be in terms of diversification, but it's moving in that direction. And what I mean by that is, unlike Dubai, which has truly diversified its economy and it's focused on logistics, travel, tourism, hotels, that whole business being the headquarter for many companies, and their oil reserves have run out from some time ago. So they have been forced to be much more aggressive than Abu Dhabi in instigating, implementing, and you know, initiating change to make sure that Dubai is a successful metropolis, which it is. And it's actually you know, the envy of many. Yeah. So you've got this force for diversification, but not you know, so pressing as in Dubai's case or others. But you do have, we've been through a trough of the commodity super cycle, low oil prices, there was peak production now into the world of peak demand. So there is this growing groundswell to diversify. It's also fair in that same period you had the the Arab Spring, you know, that a lot of that, at least at the time, was fixed around food supply concerns and so forth. So there's been other sort of commodity angles just more broadly in the region. So when was ADGM formed, Abu, Abu Dhabi Global Markets? And is it specifically stated that one of the goals of Abu Dhabi is to be a another global commodity hub in the form of a London, a New York, a Singapore? So let's be specific. Abu Dhabi Global Market was formed in 2015. So it's been in existence for six years. And the objective was to have a platform that would facilitate diversification. And the platform of Abu Dhabi Global Market, the foundational pillars of this platform are two, in my humble opinion. Number one is common law. That's UK common law with the precedent of multiple centuries, right? So when you adopt common law and you bring a case to court, you have high confidence about its likely resolution. Not complete certainty, but high confidence because there is a very developed set of legal rulings which are based on historical precedent. 
that's one the one foundational pillar the other one is in my opinion a very smart and savvy regulator a financial regulator so companies that come in from the financial sector are able to innovate who they deem to be user friendly not pushovers but user friendly because the last thing you want to do is to have a regulator who gives you kind of a dumb look kind of a blank look when you're talking about some new development so those are, are the two pillars of Abu Dhabi global market and there are other big advantages that we can talk about in a moment in terms specifically of the commodity market understanding has always been that this part of the world because of its geographical location is a very interesting hub for logistics for commodities number 1 number 2 because you have very large sovereign wealth funds here they periodically invest in the commodity sector you have the sources of capital and number 3 the modern world still requires commodities in varying amounts different ones over time but they're necessary for the development not only the economic development but also in now in particular as the humanity embraces the energy transition there are certain commodities that will really be required to facilitate all of the developments and all of the, the mechanisms implicit that Abu Dhabi will become and is morphing into a global commodities hub Yeah thank you for that I think that's a very clear exposition of some of the reasons you know why Abu Dhabi and 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 some of the the foundational support there there is this at least in the zeitgeist this idea of the commodity supercycle we've had multiple guests on talking about it and it seems to be my clearest understanding of it would be it's related to energy transition and the requirements for the metals around that all of the commodities involved in that it's also to do with a lot of redistributive policies globally that are putting money back into the hands of the consumer largely related to covid and also to do with i think the experience of covid and i want to dig on on this bit where you had a lot of disruption of supply chains and you've had this increasing global trade wars meaning organizations countries people are looking searching for different alternative supply chains for various crucial commodities so that uh, you know demand isn't interrupted which is overall led to this increasing in prices and then you start to talk about inflation so abu dhabi has some natural advantages there the key one being in some senses location and the other sense being sort of this idea of a a neutral but common law driven environment can you just position abu dhabi in the commodity supercycle and where it feels its role is or in 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 the case of ADGM so let's talk broadly about the commodity supercycle and then specifically about which commodities and then let's try and address your question your logical question which is why abu dhabi so if you think about where we've been since 2009 when if you look at the index of nonmetals it peaked out i was looking at a chart recently at 200 then it kind of collapsed down to under 100 and now it's somewhere about 110 or 115 so we haven't yet experienced any big move in, in commodities so one could argue that it's conjectural 
to suggest that there's going to be a super cycle. And I would agree. What I could argue in, in, in very strong terms is that these non-agricultural commodities will definitely go up. And they will go up for two reasons. Reason number one, as was stated previously, energy transition requires a lot of commodities. To replace it with the different strategies, the different tools, the, the different companies that will require these commodities to create what's needed for the energy transition will end up pulling out a lot of commodities, number one. Number two, the commodities have been neglected in the last 10 years. And what I mean by that is there haven't been large or significant programs to bring new capacity online. So you have a secular factor, which is the energy transition, and you have a cyclical factor, which is commodity companies with the decline in the price of, of commodities, right? So non-agricultural commodities. This excludes oil and gas, and it excludes uh, soft commodities essentially underinvested and rightly so because the price of the commodities that was prevailing in the markets did not justify this investment so those are the two key points just to say in cases like copper in the in the established metals i think that's absolutely the case i think there's where there's one slight difference to that on a global basis is that at least the chinese have been investing heavily into some of the more uh, esoteric metals, rare earths, for example, but lithium is another example, that are going into the, the, the so-called battery metals. So there has been some areas where there has been this investment. And I think that's what has also driven a narrative in the West that actually they're very far behind on some of these commodities that are going to be so prevalent in the energy transition, which I think, again, plays into actually seeking these alternative sources of various metals and alternative marketplaces. Indeed. That makes a lot of sense and it's correct. And I just wanted to mention one more one more factor. If you think about it purely in terms of liquidity that has been pumped into the global markets as a result uh, of the COVID pandemic, the numbers, as we you can appreciate, are, are staggering. And if you do a simple calculation, which is amount of liquidity, in other words, liquidity as defined by injections into the markets by the central banks, you use that as the denominator versus the amount of commodities that it's produced, you'll see that commodities have essentially lagged significantly. And the reason I'm using this comparison is because one could argue that the stock markets, which have been roaring ahead on a liquidity-adjusted basis, all they've done is kept pace with the liquidity injections. So unless we quickly find multiple alternatives to the commodities that will be needed to power a future without oil and gas so in the energy transition, it's highly likely that the price of these commodities that will be used for the energy transition will go up in price. Yeah. And that's that redistributed policies that Jeff Curry uh, on this podcast talked about of Goldman Sachs. It's such a powerful driver, which <laughs> is part of this backdrop and growing crescendo of worry about inflation, 
on a global scale that you know we are seeing and there's a debate out there whether it's transitory or whether it's actually a, a more um, sustained and secular issue Absolutely. so you've got this backdrop of incredible wealth in oil and gas which hasn't been depleted and even the the most optimistic estimates about tackling climate change and decarbonization still put peak demand for oil way out into 2030 so that's a, a real resource of support that Abu Dhabi is leaning on to be able to diversify what exactly i guess in the context of adgm in the context of commodities what has been done so far to start signaling the support and desire to build a, a commodities hub or commodities friendly environment for traders etc there are several initiatives which in one way shape or form touch commodities mubadala is involved which is one of the large sovereign wealth funds is involved in promoting projects or investing in projects which are designed to mine especially the commodities that will be used for the energy transition there was another agreement signed the, just the other day with BPI France to do something similar in the venture capital area where you're trying to come up with alternatives to the commodities that are needed so what you have here is a series of hubs and networks where people are either directly or indirectly involved in energy transition projects or projects for for that, that are promoting the mining of these resources and the majority of them if not all are going to be housed in ADGM and one of the advantages as you can appreciate that when you have multiple projects that are in one way, shape, or form involved in broad-based activity, which in this case is essentially you know, identifying and mining, extracting, and delivering the commodities that are needed for the future, you're going to, by necessity or by accident, uh, but just from the standpoint of being so close to each other, you're going to create the opportunity for these people to interact. By interacting, they then will find other ways of working together and they will in turn create even more projects. So that's how an ecosystem flourishes. And that's why ADGM in this regard is a perfect environment because it's open to innovation. It's open to new ideas. It has a good regulator. It has the foundational backdrop of UK common law. And finally, it's close to Africa. We cannot overlook the importance of Africa. Africa is a destination for anyone who's serious about commodities extraction. And what has deterred many from being involved in Africa in the past is the concern, or was the concern perhaps, that minerals would be seized, there was no rule of law, regimes were corrupt, lawless. Here today, especially with the entreaties and overtures that have been made from Abu Dhabi to the region, you have the making of a very interesting opportunity for Abu Dhabi to continue its investments and perhaps even double them and triple them in the commodity space so that it will further reinforce a, you know, a 
a preeminent position in commodities so that, uh, you know, so that Abu Dhabi through its ADGM platform can become a major commodities hub. Could you just, I, I, so I, I really want to get your, where you think this will be in 10 years. Can you just give us, before we get there and perhaps use the, the platform of the talking point, is obviously the news has been around the, the launch of the Merban Futures on ICE. Can you just give us two seconds on, on that and, and how that's gone and then contextualize that? In, do you see this as, as one piece of what will be a growing futures offering uh, in the region? Yes, you know, you've hit the nail on the head. So the Merban Futures was an event. So launching of the Merban Futures, which is the benchmark group for Abu Dhabi, that if they hadn't done it, would have been very disruptive. And possibly the pricing for oil would have ended up somewhere in Asia because you would have had an exchange that would not have been in Abu Dhabi, would not have been in the region, but would have been somewhere else that would be trading futures from which Abu Dhabi and ultimately Saudi would have to use to set their prices. So what am I saying here? Historically, oil prices that were bought by up to like 10 or 15 big clients were set on a backward-looking basis. So when prices were going up, and there were various mechanisms which are similar to a moving average. So as prices were going up, they tended to lag the market. And when prices came down, they also lagged. So on the way up, buyers weren't paying as much. On the way down, they were paying too much. Because Abu Dhabi has been reliable in its provision of delivery of crude and gas, in particular LNG, the clients who were not that many, were 15 major clients, were relatively comfortable, but not satisfied. But as the markets, and especially oil and gas has become a market where, if I'm not mistaken, more than half of the buyers are financial buyers. And by financial buyers, I'm talking about people who are managing portfolios of financial assets, and they're also acquiring assets through futures in the commodity space as a hedge against exposure in one or two areas. So they're hedging idiosyncratic risk, which is the risk of the bond market, the risk of the equity market. So they also buy commodities in a way to to weigh this. As financial assets were becoming more and more drivers of the pricing for crude, Abu Dhabi was finding itself in a way marginalized and was finding itself in a position also, as I was saying, that Asia could have stolen a march on it and essentially taken the contract to somewhere like in Shanghai or Singapore, then they would have lost control of the commodity that's most important to them. So this was a a seminal move that had to be made. So if, it, if they hadn't made it, they would have had to somehow figure out what else to do because they were in severe jeopardy of being essentially, you know, outfoxed by the by the buyers of crude in Asia. Thank you for that description. That we will see like futures for the other important hydrocarbon products that Abu Dhabi, Adnok, etc., are producing. So the short answer is probably, and the reason why it's not, you know, a more resolute response is that. You want to make sure that this contract, that everyone focuses on it, 
the need for this contract is obvious. There are other contracts, whether it's for LNG or other, or other natural gas. So it may not be, the imperative may not be as much as it was for, for Merbin because Merbin is their benchmark crude and they were beginning to be priced in the market as a spread to other contracts. In other words, to, to West Texas or to Brent. So there they had to do something for, for, for other, for other commodities, they'll do something, but they may, it may take a bit more time to develop. Yeah. So is the expectation that over the next decade, due to this felicitous location, independence, potentially standing to benefit from tension between the West and China and, and some of those trade routes, do you see as a commodity hub, do you see Abu Dhabi attracting teams of traders, organizations setting up base there? What does the future hold for Abu Dhabi as it pertains to commodities? There are two conflicting forces here, if not more. One is the network effect, which is now that you have Merbin being traded, you're also going to attract other people. And then you're probably going to attract an ecosystem of people who are trading, let's say, Merbin versus West Texas or trading Merbin versus Brent. And that's the obvious first impact. The second impact is that in the futures markets, people from a long time ago, they didn't have to meet on the floor, right? In the old days, when you were trading a commodity or a financial asset, you would actually go to a central exchange and you had people walking around with uh, different colored jackets, trading, buying, selling, executing orders. All this suddenly went electronic. So the countervailing force now, particularly in the post-pandemic, is that people are all around the world trading, so you don't necessarily need people to be anywhere near Abu Dhabi. Uh, the reality is we're going to find ourselves somewhere in between. And what's underappreciated in many instances is the importance of being with like-minded people. So. If everyone is trading Merban, if everyone is trading, if everyone is involved in derivatives or involved in options, right? So you have derivatives, you have the physical, you have options, so futures as well as options, then you're going to have a larger community because if you are an options market maker for Merban, you're probably going to want to be close to Abu Dhabi because this is where the underlying physical asset is traded. Now, if you're also trading West Texas, you might end up being in, let's say, Houston, but you're far away from a time zone perspective. So you probably have a small team that does the actual pricing of the derivatives, which is part of a bigger team in Houston. And the same, I would say, if you're doing, if you're involved in Brent, and its derivatives. You would be in London and also here. There, the time zone is more appropriate because they're close by. There's a there's a three hours difference as opposed to nine or ten hours. So that's I think how it shakes out. You will have people who eventually will be coming here as this contract picks up in in uh, volume. I think it's you talk about the physical there, and our our community, our world is very much more on the physical side of the commodities value chains, whether that's energy, ag, or metals. It's interesting because ultimately, there's no specific reason why Geneva is a commodity hub. It's as per a location, but it's because of the laws, the, you know, the regulations there 
that and some historical influences as well that has meant that many physical teams have set up there. And that actually, for the most part, is where a lot of the African-based commodity trading and marketing and business development is also centered as well. So over time, you highlighted at the very beginning of the conversation, Abu Dhabi is, you know, has these this location and it has this support, this governmental support for regulation and English UK common law. You could see, given its proximity to Africa, given its you know centrality in global trade, you could see it becoming a hub for physical commodity traders who might have nothing to do with Merban, but this is just the start of that ecosystem, that network effect that starts drawing teams there because it's a great place to be located compared to perhaps to be Geneva, you know, God forbid, in the US where you know you're you're not you know a long way away, or even in in Asia. I guess that's ultimately part of the thinking as well. Absolutely. And I think it's actually a, it's a very interesting point that you make that if you were starting from scratch and someone said to you that, you know, assuming you knew nothing about the existing location preferences of these companies, these commodity companies, you, you wouldn't have guessed that Switzerland, Zurich or Geneva would be a center. But they've done a great job, predictable rules. They actually, in many instances, the laws that are gov- that govern these transactions there are all are all common law, and the other thing they've done is they've kept taxes low, so that it, they've encouraged people who are doing things outside of Switzerland to actually domicile in Switzerland. But if you think about how expensive a place Switzerland is to operate from, we'd be shocked because it's in the top five most expensive cities in the world. So. It, it, it strikes me as it's not what you would expect. It's just, it's counterintuitive that everyone has settled there, but they have. And this, again, is a function of the network effects. Once people end up in a place, then other people go there. The advantages here are numerous, and I want to talk about the other advantages. We talked before about you have the time zone effect, right? So time zones between Asia and Europe, perfect location. The other thing that's advantageous here is taxes are 0%. And they're not 0%. It's important distinction, especially today, July the 2nd, that you've had an announcement that is informed us that 130 nations have agreed to a minimum tax of 15%. So just to make sure that large corporations pay more taxes, than which a lot of it is siphoned off uh, through various tax uh, jurisdictions. So right now, Abu Dhabi has an advantage. Their 0% has always been zero. And it's been zero because from the founding of this country in 1971, taxes were at zero. They were not lowered to encourage people to come here. They've always been zero. So in order for them to be raised to something else, the country must have a fiscal problem, or it must have been coerced, or if not coerced, sort of asked to politely to raise taxes, which would be a violation of its sovereign uh, of its sovereignty. So I don't see that happening. So another great certainty for a client setting up in Abu Dhabi is that the tax regime is very advantageous. So time zone, Tax is important. The other thing is, you have to remember that uh, this country has had a pretty good 
track record in managing the pandemic. So we didn't really have to stay locked down the way most people did. You know, we had a lockdown period, but it was not that draconian the way it was in other countries. So with the exception not being able to fly to other places because they were closed or because they were experiencing lockdowns, we lived a pretty normal life. So anytime someone from overseas sees that, you know, they'll realize when they come here that this place is, you know, it's a small, it's like a city state, right? Like a Singapore. So it's been, it's small enough to be managed in a way that's consistent with sound principles. Mm. So those are some of the advances. The other thing I should mention finally on this point is this should be exceptionally important to your listeners. Uh, Abu Dhabi is currently handing out what's known as golden visas. And those are visas that can allow you to live in a place for up to 10 years. And you don't have, you don't need a sponsor. This is very important. Everywhere today that you go, any jurisdiction, they're tightening up the rules relating to people emigrating there. Everywhere, the UK, the US, well, the US is, is pretty crazy about these things, but so everywhere, everywhere in the world, I mean, there are a few places like Canada and Australia that try to remain open, but most places are making it more difficult for people to go there and work, or they have restrictions, which is you have to advertise about uh, someone, you know, not having comparable skills or, or, or whatever, even Singapore, which used to be a place that was very open to talent has been making it increasingly difficult for people to move there. Whereas here now with the golden visas, you don't have this issue. In fact, in ADGM, you open up an ADGM, there are no local content rules. So you're not required to hire locals. Now you should, because ultimately how are you going to build a business into the future if you're constantly importing people who are then leaving? But that's your call as a business person. Very important. Yeah. I want to end up on talent. Obviously, it's close to, to HC's heart. Just to ask a question, this might sound naive, but Abu Dhabi, the Emirates themselves, are not going to be signatures to the Global Tax Treaty? Actually, I don't know. And the issue for them is 15% was set at a threshold that's very low. And in order for them, to sign this 50%, that means they will have to raise taxes on their own citizens. And that's going to become a key sovereignty question. But I will check this and come back to you. But I don't think they're going to sign this because Abu Dhabi, by the way, is not really being used to avoid taxes. So everything that's been set up in ADGM is for groups, companies, peoples, foundations, family offices that have a connection to the region. What these new tax rules are going after are people who have set up vehicles in jurisdictions where they have no business, which are commonly referred to as brass plate jurisdiction, you know, rent a desk and say, I've got all my business mm. in ADGM and flow all your income. That doesn't work. So here you need to show that you have a business, that you have people here, that you're real, that there's substance. And that's what I think makes it different. 
Yeah. Okay. So one of the key challenges that faces the commodity industries globally, but certainly in supporting a new hub, is talent. And you've identified that yourself. And you've mentioned these golden visas that really, as you say, differentiates it from many other jurisdictions and locations where that's becoming increasingly hard. There's there's a couple of challenges here. And the, the biggest challenge is ultimately that there has been quite a dramatic decline in the number of commodity professionals, whether that's financial or physical, in all different types of with all different types of skill sets and roles, because you've had you know eight years of underinvestment. You mentioned the underinvestment in assets. Well, the same thing happened in people. So you've got a, a smaller community. Some of that can be overcome with significantly more automation, digitization that's coming that's already in place or coming down the pike particularly in those mid and back office roles, but it's still you still need to attract people. And there's a, a, a smaller population of individuals, therefore they have you know, more choice of organization to work with and more choice in location. How is Abu Dhabi, and we ourselves, I should say, you know, have moved 50 plus professionals to Abu Dhabi you know, over the past two years, so, so we're intimately aware of this. What can you say to people listening to this at the moment about what life is like in Abu Dhabi and, and why actually for professionals and their and their partners and families, this is actually, a, there's probably some myths to dispel about it as a location. And how is ADGM supporting that broader community to make it attractive to individuals? Look, the first thing I would say is there are enough TikTok videos and enough Instagram videos that <laughs> although they're kind of goofy and cute, may not give you the perfect kind of rendition of what it is to live here, but they give you a close approximation. That's number one. Number two, I would suggest to anyone, you know, London, Abu Dhabi, seven hours away or, or Dubai, you should come and look because for someone to move their family or to move themselves, they need to feel comfortable with the location. And I feel highly confident in saying that come and take a look. Now I lived personally I've lived in multiple jurisdictions. I've lived in New York. I've lived in London, Frankfurt, Moscow, Abu Dhabi, and Tokyo. And one other place I forget now. Every place you need to feel comfortable. You need to, it's not just work. It's what happens after work and what about the services. Two years ago, I would ask people, how come you haven't moved to Abu Dhabi? Particularly uh, friends that I have in the UK who live in, in the city of London, who live in London and work in the city, how come you haven't looked at this place? And they'd say, well, you know, I have my networks in London. My friends are there. My spouses are comfortable there. They have their friends. We have children in school. Post-pandemic, with tax rates going up everywhere, believe me, people are looking at it. And my, my uh, suggestion is come and take a look because you'll be surprised. This is a very modern city. They have modernized and they have updated a lot of rules, restrictions that were considered onerous, to say the least. Like, for instance, they had, uh, you were not allowed to cohabit with people. So that's changed. And there was never, no one was ever taken to court from memory, but that people always found that to be a nuisance. Uh, there were restrictions re relating to alcohol and other things those have been lifted i think there is a recognition here that to enter into the modern world and stay there you need talent this is the business paul that you're in and you know that better than me 
people matter. If you don't have the right people, if the people that you're trying to attract are concerned either about the rules and regulations or about the law that is applied, they'll think twice. And ultimately, that's why I say you have to come and look. This is a unique destination. If you think about the Abu Dhabi Dubai conurbation, right? Within essentially 100 kilometers from each other, you have two big cities which offer pretty amazing array entertainment and a lot of other things. So this is an interesting place to look at by all means. So one of the key challenges that the commodity industry faces as a whole is diversity. This is very much the the legacy of the nature of the work and the, the culture that many organizations built and a whole host of things. The many organizations, certainly the corporations are tackling this. This is very high on their agenda and it's a very challenging process to attract more specifically gender diversity to the industry, you know, when when the whole marketplace is competing to build diversity and the extractive industries can sometimes be unnecessarily attracted to any of the, the current generations. The natural concern, and I say this out of ignorance, I think, for people looking at, at the, the Emirates or Abu Dhabi in particular uh, as women would be, what are there extra restrictions around them that there aren't in places like Singapore, London, Geneva, or whatever. Can you just give us a, help us understand kind of, do those remain in place or, or, you know, is that also, those restrictions have also been lifted, if any? Well, look, I mean, there are commonplace, if not necessarily restrictions, I would call them strictures, which is you're in a Muslim country. You shouldn't be wearing short shorts. I think certain displays of affection are frowned on, but you're not going to be taken away and whiplashed, whipped, okay? So, I, I, you know, what I would urge people to do is to say, you know, I'm here, I have to be more respectful. I'm not at the beach in Saint-Tropez, right? You're not going to go, I mean, you go to a beach in Saint-Tropez and you have nude bathing. I don't think they have nude bathing here, although I could be wrong, they might. So for me, it's just a question of respecting, you know, the culture too of the country that you're at. Yeah, thanks for that. I agree. There, you know, it's a. Um, it just comes back to these. Every location has its uh, idiosyncrasies. Every location has its positives and negatives. It's against a backdrop of competing for global talent. It's you know to hear that it's good that Abu Dhabi has recognised that it is all about people. And if you're going Absolutely. to fulfill goals, you've got to be able to attract the right people. And like you say as well, you've got to also develop the uh, the local talent because it's very expensive hiring expats. And, and part of what Singapore has been trying to do you know, over the last decade has been to build up a local workforce so that not every person in your finance department has to come from Europe or elsewhere, which is incredibly expensive to organizations. You've got to find that balance. An area that's possibly going to change with in the post-pandemic world, which is as we look to hire talent, we now know that we don't have to bring everyone to Abu Dhabi, right? Not only Abu Dhabi, we don't have to bring everyone to London. You don't have to bring everyone to New York. There are jobs that can be done remotely. And I think what it does is it increases the competition uh, but it opens up other avenues for organizing oneself. Mm. So in my mind, 
it's almost the, you know, this could be a whole podcast in itself in terms of how does that work out when you have people in multiple locations? How do you end up managing them? Because I think one of the challenges for the people here, because they're not hands-on managers, they're actually, from a cultural perspective, they're more uncomfortable being an intrusive manager. They're going to have to adapt and change their, their lifestyle. So I don't know. I mean, that's something that you, you, mm. you know. Well, well, I think it's interesting because you've got those two divergent forces, right? And you, you alluded to this earlier. There is this network effect, this serendipity that is created by proximity right. in the ecosystem yeah. that, that generates the ideas that you, you know that commodity trading ultimately thrives on. Uh, we've just yes. done, not to date the podcast, but we've just done a thought piece on this in our Q2 review. And and I've had multiple witnesses testimony saying like we had to get our traders back together because we could tell productivity wasn't there. Now that's not true for all roles, right? That's not true certainly for say necessarily risk managers or 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 people in finance in middle or back office. If there's two different tensions, one is it certainly would allow more quickly to set up offices locations um, platforms by having more, many of those roles in remote locations and just having the key business developers or commercial individuals in country, in region, because that's what the benefit is, is just striking that balance. I think that all organizations are wrestling with, because again, as part of the, I hate using the phrase, but that kind of the, the war for talent is overused, but part of that competition for talent, which is heating up, is you people are starting now to introduce the idea of location or work environment or or how people can access work as part of a competitive advantage. Exactly. You know, do one day in the office, or you can do one week in four in the office, or you can work from wherever. You're already seeing it. Yeah, right? yeah. We've, seen, we've seen Deloitte yeah, yeah. come out and say that they're making their entire workforce remote. That doesn't mean that people aren't going to go into an office or collaborate together, but it is a very significant move, I think, that people are signaling that we aren't going to go back to the post-pandemic, the pre-pandemic world. And that actually only bodes well for countries, regions, markets that are trying to set up organizations or attract organizations, you know, because you don't have to now have all services, all roles in that regional office. Exactly. Well, it's been a, a really interesting discussion. It's It's great to hear directly kind of from you what ADGM's role is and, and more broadly Abu Dhabi's role as regards to commodities and I think it's a story that will be worth revisiting over the next few years because I know there's clearly a lot of natural reasons why it couldn't likely will become a, a significant commodity hub rivaling the likes of Singapore, New York, Chicago, London, Geneva as we go through this energy transition and beyond. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me Paul. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.